Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that uh, you have given us your word and that you have revealed so much of yourself and your will through the Bible. And I pray as we look in the Bible now that we would see the truth and that we would see how the truth can change our lives. And we ask this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. So this is the first week of our Advent series of sermons. Uh, we kicked off Advent actually on Thursday night. We had a special prayer service on Thursday. I, we didn't have a, a message. It was a special time to get together and kick off the Advent season. Um, and now we're getting into the four Advent themes, which are hope, peace, joy, and love. And these are the traditional themes that churches have used to, uh, to celebrate Advent for centuries. Hope, peace, joy, and love. And these themes are chosen because they are key ideas that make the coming of Jesus on Christmas significant. And this week, we're talking about the hope of Christmas. So let's talk about that, the basic idea there. What is hope? What is hope? It's a word that we use fairly often, but it's not really easy sometimes to, to put into words what exactly it is. And there's a few different ways that we use the word in our modern English, but a lot of times um, the way that we use it is simply to express the desired outcome. I hope this is going to happen. That means this is what I want to happen, right? And, uh, you know, we say, like, I hope my team wins the football game today. Now, uh, I have pretty much given up on my Indianapolis Colts this year. It's uh, been a frustrating season for the Colts. But I do have another team that I've been cheering for for years that's not my favorite team, but it's still right up there, and the Minnesota Vikings. And the Vikings are having a great season. And, uh, and I have still uh, hope for the Vikings, as they're having a great year, that they could win the Super Bowl in a couple of months. So what does it mean that I hope that the Vikings will win? It, it, it could simply mean that this is the outcome I would like to see, right? But it means a little bit more than that. See, my favorite team is the Colts, but I don't say that I hope the Colts are going to win the championship this year. Why not? Because I am pretty confident that that's not going to happen. <laughs> um, the Colts are bad. <laughs> And, uh, and they pretty much have zero chance of winning the Super Bowl. The Vikings, on the other hand, have a real shot at winning. And because I see that as a real possibility, I have hope that they're going to win. So hope, in, in this way that we commonly use it, uh, expresses a desired outcome, but it also implies some amount of optimism that that outcome could really happen. We have hope. There's optimism about the possibility. With the Colts, no optimism. The word that we might use to describe the Colts this year is hopeless. And hopeless is actually an interesting word to think about when we want to think about what hope means. It's, it's helpful to think about the, the contrasting word, hopeless. Um, when we think about the idea of hopelessness, um, what do we mean when we say that a, a situation is hopeless? It means that there is no way that anything good is going to come out of that situation. Hopeless 
means that the outcome is set. There is no improving a hopeless situation. You might as well give up because it isn't going to change. It's hopeless. In football, if things are hopeless, um, it's really not that big a deal. It's just a game. <laughs> it's just football. I enjoy watching. We can cheer for our team and stuff. But, but it doesn't, doesn't really matter much. But what about when other things are hopeless in other areas of our lives? What about when we feel hopeless in things that really matter? The Bible talks about the human condition pre-Christmas, and it talks about it in some fairly hopeless terms. This is from the, the, the book of Titus, toward the end of your Bible, where Paul is writing to one of his protégés named Titus. And here's what, how he talks about it. He says, at one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. Who is the Bible describing here? Foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved by passions, hating and being hated. That's a pretty negative description. So who, who is he talking about? It says, we too were described this way. So who's we? Well, if you look at the context of the passage here, it's pretty clear that who he's talking about is Christians, the people who are part of the church, the same people that are frequently called in the Bible the saints, which means uh, the holy people. And Paul the apostle is including himself in this too. He's saying we. Now, this guy was, was one of the greatest Christians who's ever lived. And he says about himself, I was foolish and disobedient and enslaved and hating. And, and, and that means that it applies to you too. This is how we were before God intervened. We were pretty messed up. I mean, just look at that description. We were foolish. That means we made foolish decisions. We believed foolish lies. We told foolish lies. We thought foolishly. And we behaved foolishly. Disobedient. We knew what we were supposed to do, and we did not do it. We defied God's authority to direct our lives. Deceived and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. See, we chased after all these things that we thought would bring us happiness and joy and pleasure and satisfaction. But we were deceived. These pursuits did not fulfill their promises. Rather, they enslaved us. And our interpersonal relationships were broken too. We lived in malice and envy and hatred. But we could see that we had problems, right? And, and in hindsight, at least, we could see that we had made many foolish decisions. And so, and, and, and so we could see that the, our pursuit of pleasure wasn't leading where we wanted it to go. And we could see that our relationships were broken. And so we determined 
to change. We made New Year's resolutions. We read self-help books. We tried to make our relationships better. We tried to learn wisdom. And some of us succeeded in making our lives better than they were before, but not enough better. <laughs> we tried hard, but we didn't solve our problems. Many people, like Paul, who wrote this section, uh, tried to follow religion. And, and here's how he describes that. In another part of the Bible, he says, For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do. This I keep on doing. What a wretched man I am. See, trying to fix it yourself never works. It is a hopeless situation. Thoreau famously described the human condition as this. He said, the mass of men lead lives of quiet desperation. What is called resignation is confirmed desperation. From the desperate city, you go into the desperate country and have to console yourself with the bravery of minks and muskrats. A stereotyped but unconscious despair is concealed even under what are called the games and amusements of mankind. That's a pretty gloomy and depressing view of the human condition, both in the Bible and in Thoreau. But Thoreau believed that people did not have to live this way. He believed that there was hope for a better life. The Bible also believes that there is hope for a better life and that a better life is possible. But the Bible offers a solution that's a whole lot better than simply moving out of the country and writing poetry. Right? Paul follows up his cry of what a wretched man I am with this. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. Thoreau speaks of despair. Paul calls out for a rescuer. Who will rescue me? And Paul knows that his rescuer has come. That's the hope of Christmas. We're living in quiet desperation. And when we realize that all our efforts to repair the brokenness all around us is hopeless, when we realize that we are not good enough, not strong enough, not enough, and without hope of saving ourselves, then God comes to our rescue. The Bible says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. That's Christmas. God sending his son into the world to save us from all of our brokenness. It's Jesus being sent into the world to live among us so that we could be saved through him. 
And that's why we have hope. And we said earlier that, that when we talk about hope, it's usually um, a statement of uh, the outcome that we desire to happen with at least some optimism thrown into it. Um, but when the Bible talks about hope, it's stronger than that. Right? Uh, the way that we use our English word hope today is a weaker version of the way that the original uh, Greek and Hebrew of the Bible talked about hope. Biblical hope is more than a minimal optimism that the desired outcome has a, has a shot, right? Biblical hope is a confident faith that the desired outcome will actually happen. It's more than a wish, it's an expectation. When we have hope in the way that the Bible talks about hope, it gives us a confidence that the future will be good. Our hope is based on the promises of God, and God keeps his promises. He promised to send a Messiah to save us, and he did. That's why Christmas is all about the coming of the long-awaited promised Messiah. God said that he would send a Savior, and on that first Christmas, the Savior arrived. Here's how that passage from Titus that describes our hopeless condition of foolishness and slavery and all that. Here's how it continues there in Titus chapter 3. It says, But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Not because of righteous things we had done, but because of His mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that, having been justified by His grace, we might become heirs having the hope of eternal life. When life was hopeless, God's kindness and love appeared, and He saved us from a hopeless existence. He saved us from lives of quiet desperation. And he has given us the hope of eternal life. And that is the kind of hope that is a confident expectation, not just wishful thinking. Because of the coming of Jesus on that first Christmas, we have hope. We have hope of eternal life with God in paradise. We will be free from slavery to our sins. We will be free from hatred and being hated. We will be free from foolishness and deception. We will want to do good and we will be able to do it. That is our hope. That is our confident expectation that Christians have for the future. And this is not only a hope for some far away day in the future. Right? Obviously, the hope of eternal heaven is focused on the future, but Jesus changes our lives in the here and now as well. Our transformation begins as soon as we put our faith in Jesus and become Christians. The, uh, the, the technical theological term for this is sanctification. And sanctification is a lifelong process 
which we make progress toward a better life that is free from all of the effects of being sinful people and living in a sinful world. But that process involves a lot of struggle because we are still sinful people living in a sinful and fallen world. And so some of us look at those descriptions of life before Jesus and we say, that still pretty much describes my life. I've been a Christian for years and I still feel like I'm foolish and disobedient and serving my passions, even experiencing hatred. Yes, sometimes the Christian life is like that. The hope that came to us at Christmas is not instant gratification. It's a promise of gratification in the future and a slow incremental growth throughout our lives. And the growth is not on a steady, smooth climb toward perfection. Right? It's a messy journey with highs and lows. Sometimes we make good progress. Sometimes we feel like we're going backwards. But hope makes a big difference. The message of God's love and salvation that we find in the Bible makes a big difference. The gospel makes a big difference. And as we celebrate the beginnings of the Christmas season, we celebrate hope. But we also recognize that this is a tough time of the year for a lot of people. Right? And in fact, this is the time of year when many people struggle the most, including struggles with mental health. But hope has a lot to say about that. You know, Pastor Rick Warren, I don't know if you guys know Pastor Rick, but he is the pastor of Saddleback Church down in California, best known as the author of The Purpose Driven Life, which is one of the best-selling books of all time. Um, he also started and leads one of the biggest churches in the U.S., and he's written quite a few other books uh, that, uh, as well. And he's one of the most prominent pastors in the world. And unlike some famous preachers with big churches, his theology is solid. And, uh, and he's been free from, from scandals and things that uh, sometimes you hear about. Pastor Rick's a great guy. But in 2013, tragedy struck his family. His youngest son, Matthew, committed suicide after a lifelong struggle with mental illness. And in response, Pastor Rick and his wife Kay started a ministry to help people who struggle with mental health. And their ministry is called Hope for Mental Health. And it deals with mental health issues from a thoroughly Christian and biblical perspective. And they use the word hope in the, the name of that ministry because so often hopelessness is one of the main elements of mental health struggles. And as we talk about the hope of Christmas today, I want to address some of that hopelessness that often comes to people around Christmas time. Because part of what people struggle with uh, in, in their mental health is the need for hope. And one of the key ways that, that, that Hope for Mental Health, the ministry, teaches about hope is through something that they call the hope circle. 
And the Hope Circle is, is a set of five life-transforming scriptural truths that combat negative messages known as arresting statements that we sometimes tell ourselves. And these arresting statements, when we tell them to ourselves and, and we feel that they are true, can have devastating effects in our lives. And the need for biblical truth to counteract them is great. And so, so we're going to uh, take the rest of our time here to look at these five statements. So here's the hope circle and its five statements on the slide there. The biblical truths on the circle are these. You are loved. You have a purpose. You belong. You have a choice. And you are needed. And we're going to take a minute or two on, on each one of those. Um, the first one, the destructive thing that we often say to ourselves is, I hate myself. A lot of times people get that feeling and tell themselves that they hate themselves. But hope says this. Hope says you are loved. God loves you. Here's what the Bible says about that. The book of 1 John, it says, this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. And yes, that includes you. Even if you don't feel worthy of God's love, guess what? God's love for you is not dependent on you being worthy of it. <laughs> it's not dependent on us being good enough. God loves us because he loves us. It's not that we loved God and so he loves us back. We didn't love God, but he loved us anyway. And that includes you. So let's all say this together. We're going to do this with each of the five. We're going to do a repeat after me. So I will say it first, and then you repeat after me. I am loved by God. I am loved by God. Whether we always feel like we are loved by God or not, it's always true. Amen. The next point in the hope circle is that we sometimes tell ourselves, I don't matter. But hope says, you have a purpose. The verse with this one is from the book of Jeremiah where it says, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. God has a good purpose and a good plan for you. He created you for a reason. And I don't just mean he created humanity for a reason. He created you for a reason. He made you the way that he wanted you to be with the talents and the personality that he wanted you to have so that you could fulfill the purposes and plans that he has for you. Pastor Rick, as I mentioned earlier, has written a great book, uh, The Purpose Driven Life, where he talks all about the five purposes 
uh, from the Bible that, uh, that he sees for God in, in each of our lives. I've read the book about six or eight times. I've led a couple of small groups through it. It's a really good book. Um, Purpose Driven Life, pick it up and, and read about the purpose that God has for you and all the things that he has for you to do and why he gave you. Let's do it. Repeat after me. I have a purpose. I have a purpose. The next point from the hope circle, we tell ourselves, I don't fit in. I don't belong. But hope says, you belong. Our verse for that one is from Romans chapter 12, where it says, For just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. When we become Christians, we are joined together spiritually. And this metaphor of comparing the church to a body comes up in two different places in the Bible here and in another section. And in both, the emphasis is on unity in diversity. We are not all the same, right? We're not the same, but we are all united. We're not the same, but we need each other to have a great church. To do the work that God has for his church in the world, he has put you in it to fulfill a specific role. Now, this does not mean that as soon as you walk into the church, everybody here is just automatically going to be your best friend. You know, that, that's not what it means when it says you belong and you are part of us. Um, it does mean, though, that you belong here. Every Christian is part of the group. We are connected even if we don't know each other very well yet. Of course, we can also develop those deeper relationships with some of the people in our church that could become our best friends. And the people in your church can become the people who know you best and who you know as well. Because we really do have a spiritual connection and we all belong to one another. So if you are a Christian, you belong here at Clearwater Church. I am connected with you, even if we haven't met yet. So let's do it again. Repeat after me. I belong. I belong. The next uh, point from the hope circle is that we sometimes tell ourselves, I want to give up. But hope says... You have a choice. This is the one where the hopelessness really comes to bear in our lives. We just want to give up. But you always have a choice. You don't get to choose everything, but you do have choices. You don't get to choose to experience trauma. You didn't choose to struggle with mental health. There's things in your life that you don't get to choose but you have choices in how you respond to those things. You can make the choice to get help. You have the choice to get sober. You have the choice to take medication if necessary. You have the choice to feel your feelings. 
You have a choice to grieve. You have a choice to forgive those who have mistreated you or let you down. You have the choice to take care of your body, to eat well, sleep well, to rest. You have a choice to stay here and remain tethered to the people and places and communities that make you want to stay. And you have a choice to use your pain to help someone else. So do not give up because you do have choices. Here's a passage for, for this one from 2 Corinthians. It says, But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. We are weak in ourselves, right? We are jars of clay. We are fragile and weak. And so when we face tough times, God will help us to make good choices and, to, and, and, and so that we can be hard-pressed but not crushed, so that we can be perplexed but not in despair, so that we can be persecuted but not abandoned and struck down but not destroyed. It's not our strength. We are fragile jars of clay, but God's power within us can help us to endure. We can make it through difficulties through the power of God in these fragile jars of clay. So don't give up because you have a choice. So let's say it together. Repeat after me. I have a choice. I have a choice. Last one um, is that we often tell ourselves, I feel useless. But hope says, you are needed. You are not useless. You are needed. Remember what we just said about the body of Christ, right? When you are a Christian, you belong to the body of Christ and you have been gifted by God to make a distinct contribution to the church. We need you. We need you to be part of our church. And your contribution is a lot more than just setting up chairs or making coffee or playing the clarinet in the band or, or whatever volunteer positions you have. Um, your contribution is much more than that. Your contribution is when you interact with the other people in the church. It's when you ask for prayer. It's when you pray for someone. It's when you encourage someone. It's when you're just uh, being a friend to someone who needs one. When you get to know someone and let them know you. When you're part of a journey group and you're interacting with people, you are needed for all of those things. And the verse uh, on the hope wheel that po points out another way that, that you are needed here. It's again from 2 Corinthians chapter 1 this time. It says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles, so that, here's the purpose, so that we can comfort those in any trouble 
with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. So even our struggles can be used by God. One purpose that we find in our troubles is to help others be comforted in their troubles. Our pain can become our ministry. You are needed because you have experienced troubles similar to the other troubles that people around us have also experienced. And they need you to help them get through it. So for the last time, repeat after me, I am needed. I am needed. So the message of Christmas and the broader message of the gospel gives us hope. In many areas of our lives, we have hope. And our hope, yes, our hope is in heaven. Our hope is in, in a perfect future forever with God. But our hope is for now, too that we can have a better life. Our hope helps us right now. It even helps us in our struggles with mental health. That becomes more common here in the holiday season. And so let us rejoice in Christmas. Let us look forward with hope to the celebration of the coming of the baby. And let us celebrate the hope that Jesus gives. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the gift of hope. I pray that you would help us whenever we struggle in these ways to know the hope that you have put in our hearts and to, to be encouraged by your encouragement and by the people around us. May we use our pain to encourage others. I ask these things, Father, in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.